My name is Sarah Milov. I'm um, an assistant professor in the history department. Uh, my, it's my second year here, and I feel quite lucky uh, to have begun my UVA career while Chuck is still um, in the orbit. Um, so I'm going to introduce the panel um, in the order in which their names are written, which will also be the order in which they will be presenting their papers. Um, and I'm going to intro everyone now so that we can just get right to papers and discussion. And since our topic is federalism, law, and the economy, uh, rather ambitious uh, set of issues, we won't waste too much time right now. So first we'll have Professor Barry Cushman of Notre Dame Law School, where he is the John P. Murphy Foundation Professor of Law and a concurrent professor of history and political science. Uh, professor Cushman probably does not need too much introduction here, since before going to Notre Dame, he was here at UVA for 15 years as the James Monroe Distinguished Professor of Law and History. In addition to numerous articles and book chapters on constitutional law, political economy, and social movements in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, he is the author of Rethinking the New Deal Court, The Structure of a Constitutional Revolution, uh, which received the AHA's Littleton Griswold Prize in American Law and Society. Uh, today, Professor Cushman will be presenting on the constitutional foundations of the New Deal securities laws. Uh, then we will hear from Professor Stephanie McMahon. Uh, I just want to clear up any confusion right now that if you Google Professor McMahon, she is not the same Stephanie McMahon that is the pro wrestler and daughter of WWE CEO Vince McMahon. Not, they're not the same. Uh, instead, <laughs> Professor McMahon. <laughs> so you can all come closer, that was why, right? Uh, is a professor of law at the University of Cincinnati Law School, where she teaches courses in tax law and legal history. Um, her work lies at the intersection of these fields, and in particular um, asks how women have been affected by taxation and how women have used taxation issues to further their own rights. Um, her scholarship has been published in the Florida Tax Review, the Law and History Review, and the Pittsburgh Tax Review, uh, among other places. Uh, she received her JD from Harvard Law and her PhD, of course, from UVA, where she was advised by Chuck. Um, and the title of her dissertation, I think, uh, belies the idea that it's tax is boring. It was money, sex, and tax politics, De developments in tax avoidance, and joint filing, which kind of casts joint filing uh, in a different light. Um, <laughs> Professor McMahon will present on federalizing the federal income tax. Uh, will then be followed by Professor Logan Sawyer, another one of Chuck's uh, recent PhDs, who will present on the Beverage Child Labor Bill in Progressive Era Law and Politics, uh, 1906 to 1908. Uh, Professor Sawyer recently received tenure from the University of Georgia Law School, so round of applause there. Uh, <laughs> uh, he teaches courses in American legal history, corporations, and the ethics of lawyering. And his scholarship has appeared recently in the Denver Law Review, uh, Law and History Review. And he received, uh, he's a triple threat, he received his MA, JD, and PhD right here from UVA. Uh, and finally, we'll hear from uh, Vicki Wusty, uh, research professor at the American Bar Foundation in Chicago. Uh, she received her PhD and MA in jurisprudence and social policy at Berkeley, and actually began her career here at UVA as an undergrad, where, is it right, Chuck was your undergrad thesis advisor? No. No. I took his classes. Okay, that, instead, yes. Um, <clears throat> she is the uh, author of numerous essays and articles on both Henry Ford and agricultural law, and actually perhaps the surprising overlaps therein. Yes. Um, also an article on Harry Potter, I noticed, up on SSRN. Um, she is the author of several books, including Henry Ford's War on Jews uh, and the Legal Battle Against Hate Speech, which was released in paperback in 2013, and there's even a movie being made. We'll see about that. <laughs> Living the dream, though. Yeah. Um, uh, she is the author as well of The Farmer's Benevolent Trust, Law and Agricultural Cooperation in Industrial America, which was the winner of the J. Willard Hearst Prize uh, from the Law and Society Association. Uh, Vicki will be presenting on Capitalism and Agriculture, the Fate of American Democracy. Thank you all for coming out this afternoon, and thanks again to the organizers of the conference for inviting me to participate. Um, 
I'd like to tell you a little bit about how I got into this subject. I've been working on a book uh, called Outlaws of Commerce, uh, Federal Power and Social Reform in the Progressive Era, which is about the use of the federal commerce power to reach a series of social problems, essentially all the vices, which is what interested me in the project in the first place. Um, and as I was writing a chapter about the Fair Labor Standards Act, the legislative history of the Fair Labor Standards Act of 1938, I noticed that people in uh, Congress began to talk about the securities laws. And so I figured I had to say something about the securities laws. And I went looking for uh, a constitutional history of the securities laws. And I found that uh, there wasn't one, at least not one that would serve my purposes. So I figured uh, I had to stop and write one. Um, and uh, the, the project in, uh, on the securities laws is going to end up being in two parts. One is going to be on the, the legislative history of, of uh, attempts in Congress between 1919 uh, and 1934 to enact uh, regulations of national securities markets, uh, and then uh, what happens uh, afterward. That first one will probably be called uh, the constitutional origins of the New Deal securities laws, but uh, I wrote the second half uh, first because I couldn't wait to see how the story ended, uh, and that one is called uh, Constitutional Foundations of the New Deal Securities Laws, and that's what I'd like to present uh, this afternoon. Uh, though much has been written about the New Deal securities laws, little attention has been devoted to their constitutional foundations. Uh, at the time that they were enacted, the Securities Act of 1933, the Securities Exchange Act, and Exchange Act of 1934, and the Public Utility Hold uh, Holding Company Act of 1935 raised two principal constitutional questions. The first was whether their regulations of securities markets were consistent with the Due Process Clause of the Fifth Amendment. Uh, the second was whether they were within the power of Congress to enact under the Commerce Clause. The first of these questions was uh, the less troublesome. In a trio of cases decided in 1917, the Supreme Court had heard due process challenges to state blue sky laws requiring licensing of securities dealers in compliance with registration and disclosure requirements for proposed sales of securities within the state. The justices upheld the regulations as legitimate means of protecting the invested, investing public uh, from fraud and imposition. Uh, the second issue, however, was more concerning. The New Deal securities laws enforced their regulations of securities markets by prohibiting the use of the means or instruments of interstate commerce to engage in objectionable behavior. Section 5 of the 33 Act prohibited the use of such means or instruments to sell or deliver new issues of securities that had not been registered with a federal agency, first uh, the Federal Trade Commission and later the Securities and Exchange Commission. Uh, se Section 17A of that Act prohibited the use of such means or instruments to engage in fraud with respect to the sale of securities. Section 5 of the 34 Act prohibited brokers and dealers from using such means or instrumentalities to effectuate a securities transaction on an exchange subject to federal jurisdiction unless that exchange was registered with the Commission. And Sections 9A and 10 uh, of the 34 Act prohibited the use of such means or instrumentalities to employ uh, manipulative or deceptive devices in connection with the purchase or sale of securities. Uh, now, uh, because of time limitations, I'm going to have to, I had to cut out from uh, uh, the longer paper uh, a fair amount of uh, interesting doctrinal detail, but I figured you didn't want to hear that anyway. Um, the principal drafters of the security statutes, Benjamin Cohen, Thomas Corcoran, and James Landis, relied upon precedents in which the justices had upheld federal prohibitions on the interstate shipment of such disfavored items uh, as lottery tickets, diseased livestock, and impure or mislabeled food and drugs. But there was a worrisome fly in this ointment. In 1918, in the notorious case of Hammer v. Dagenhart, a narrowly divided court had held that the Keating Owen Child Labor Act of 1916 exceeded Congress's power under the Commerce Clause. The Act's prohibition on the interstate shipment of goods made by firms employing children under specified ages, the court held, constituted an indirect means of regulating the employment of child labor, a matter of the regulation of which the Constitution had reserved to the several states. Justice Day's opinion distinguished the court's prior decisions on the ground that the statutes there had involved prohibited, had, uh, in involved, excuse me, had prohibited interstate shipment of items that were in themselves harmful. Congress had plenary authority to exclude such harmful items from interstate commerce, but goods made by children were harmless and Congress had no power to exclude such harmless items. The looming constitutional question, therefore, was whether unregistered securities or securities sold on unregistered exchanges were inherently harmful. Most observers writing in the law journals appeared confident that these provisions of the securities laws would weather constitutional challenge. But some commentators expressed uncertainty uh, over whether they would be sustained on judicial review. These commentators argued that non-compliant interstate transactions in securities were not inherently harmful. 
indeed that most such transactions were harmless and for honest value, and that the closing of the channels of interstate commerce to such securities transactions was therefore an attempt by indirection to regulate a field beyond congressional control. By contrast, the lower federal courts uniformly upheld the constitutionality of the 1933 and 1934 acts. The power of Congress to prohibit interstate transportation of unregistered securities was sustained by Hoover appointee Francis Caffey of the United States District Court for the Southern District of New York in August of 1935. The case of Securities and Exchange Commission v. Jones involved an issuer who had filed a registration statement with the Commission in May of 1935. After reviewing the statement and before it became effective, the Commission notified Jones that it appeared to contain uh, misrepresentations of material facts and to omit required information. The Commission initiated stop order proceedings with respect to the securities uh, and issued a subpoena requiring Jones to appear and testify concerning his registration statement and to produce extensive financial records. Jones responded by filing motions to withdraw the registration statement and to quash the subpoena. Uh, the Commission denied that motion and applied to the District Court for an order compelling Jones to comply. In ruling in favor of the Commission and upholding the validity of the 1933 Act, Judge Caffey distinguished Hammer on the grounds that there the goods dealt with were harmless. The 1933 Act, however, denied the facilities of interstate commerce only to articles that were fraudulent or, if not actually fraudulent, unfair to investors. Such securities were harmful. Moreover, no person distant from their place of origin ordinarily could find out for himself whether they are or are not worthless or vicious in character. Where securities were offered to prospective purchasers far from the state of their initiation, Caffey saw no more ground for exempting them from regulation of their transportation interstate until such transportation is licensed by a government agency than there would be for letting food and drugs circulate freely between the states without labels or without outlawing those which would injure the users. Caffey therefore felt no hesitancy in upholding the provisions of Section 5 of the 33 Act. The Second Circuit uh, affirmed Judge Caffey on the basis of the postal power alone without reaching the Commerce Clause issue, but many other lower federal courts followed Caffey's lead in upholding Section 5 and Section 17A of the 1933 Act as exercises of the Commerce Power. And in April of 1936, Hoover appointee Robert Patterson of the United States District Court for the Southern District of New York upheld Section 9A of the 34 Act. It cannot be doubted, Patterson ruled, that Congress may close the channels of commerce to such transactions in corporate securities as it has reasonably found and declared to be directly detrimental to the financial health of the public generally. Jones's appeal from his loss in the Second Circuit invited the Supreme Court to rule on the constitutionality of the 1933 Act. Former Solicitor General James Beck was the lead attorney on the brief for the petitioner, which argued that the case was controlled by Hammer v. Dagenhart. There is nothing in this act which attempts to purify the thing in commerce, Beck maintained. If the truth be told in the registration statement and printed in the balance sheet in the prospectus, it matters not how fraudulent or worthless the security may be. It may go into interstate commerce. On the other hand, the most valuable security on the market may not be permitted in interstate commerce if the issuer has failed or refused to register his security or, in registering, had either omitted to state a material fact or misstated a material fact. The effect of such registration was not to prevent fraud, Beck argued, but to induce it to tell the truth about a fraudulent security and thus immunize it in interstate commerce would be about as helpful to the public as raising the quarantine upon the leper merely because he states that he is a leper. Thus, Beck insisted, the security which may be placed in the channels of interstate commerce is not sanctified by the grace of registration. Its value is not certified. Even the truth of the prospectus is not assumed or assured by the fact of registration. Therefore, the Securities Act did not safeguard the recipient of the article subjected to such classification by the Act. Because the Act permitted the interstate shipment of harmful securities and prohibited the interstate shipment of harmless securities, it presented, Beck concluded, an identical picture with that which was before the court in Hammer v. Dagenhart and for the reasons expressed by the court in that opinion should be held to be an invasion of constitutional guarantees. Solicitor General Stanley Reed countered that if the securities were transported across state lines without being truthfully described, they may injure persons in the state of destination. 
It was common knowledge that the instrumentalities of interstate commerce had been used to practice misrepresentation, frauds, and a concealment of material facts in the sale of securities to the American people. It was impossible to know the precise value of the losses thereby incurred, but a Senate report estimated the annual total at $1.7 billion and the total over the preceding 10 years to be $25 billion. The disclosure required by the act tended to prevent two different sorts of evil, Reed argued, the interstate transportation of certificates which are themselves harmful because they bear on their face misrepresentations and the sale of securities which have been otherwise misrepresented. The precedents established, Reed argued, that co Congress may exclude from the channels of commerce articles which are themselves harmful and could forbid the use of channels of interstate commerce to promote dishonesty or immorality. Hammer was therefore not controlling Reed maintained because that decision never had been considered inconsistent with the power of Congress to close the channels of interstate commerce to objects which it deemed noxious and harmful to the people in other states which they would, to which they would otherwise be transported. The Child Labor Act had attempted to control the activity which is control activity which was wholly the concern of the states. By contrast, the registration provisions of the 33 Act did not attempt to regulate or standardize local conditions under which articles are produced, nor did they attempt to induce any change in local law. Rather, the Act employed the commerce power merely to require a disclosure of the character of subjects carried and not to affect their local production. The Act, therefore, was parallel not to the child labor law, but to the lottery statute, the Pure Food and Drug Act, and similar federal statutes which were distinguished in Hammer. Well, by a vote of six to three, the court held that the commission was legally obligated to permit withdrawal of the registration statement and was without authority to compel Jones to testify or produce documents concerning that statement. It therefore, the court concluded, was unnecessary to consider the constitutional validity of the act. Justice Stone, who along with Justice Brandeis joined Justice Cardozo's powerful dissent, wrote privately to Felix Frankfurter that Justice Sutherland's majority opinion was written for morons and such will no doubt take comfort from it. But I can hardly believe that intelligent people trained in the law will swallow such bunkum. As it turned out, the leading case in which the court would rule on the constitutionality of the New Deal's program of registration and disclosure would involve neither the 33 Act nor the 34 Act, but the Holding Company Act. Section 5 of the Act required public utility holding companies to register with and provide certain information to the Securities and Exchange Commission. Registered companies were in turn subjected to extensive regulation, and Section 4A denied the use of the facilities of interstate commerce to holding companies that failed to comply with Section 5's registration requirements. Law review commentators again expressed some uncertainty about whether the Act's registration provisions could be squared with Hammer, and numerous companies brought actions to enjoin the Act's implementation. A federal district judge overseeing a utility bankruptcy proceeding in Maryland held on the authority of Hammer that the act could not constitutionally be applied to companies doing only an intrastate business, and the Fourth Circuit affirmed. However, the government successfully stayed the other injunction proceedings until the Supreme Court would, could resolve the question of the act's constitutionality in a test case that the commission had selected. That case was uh, an action to enforce uh, the Act's registration provisions against the electric bond and share company. I'm sorry, I couldn't read that properly. Two. Two, okay. Well, they won the case. <laughs> um, Justice uh, Cardozo and Reed did not participate, but of the remaining justices, only the dyspeptic uh, McReynolds, also the lone dissenter in the Blue Sky cases, dissented from Hughes's opinion in favor of the commission. Even the arch-conservative uh, Justice Butler joined the majority opinion upholding the application of the registration provisions and the prohibition on interstate transportation uh, by companies failing to register. Um, the decision was viewed as implicitly upholding the 1933 and 1934 acts, and the SEC's 1938 uh, annual report was jubilant over its, what it called, its importance. It by far overshadowed all of other litigation during the year and marked the successful conclusion of a preliminary phase in the administration of a highly important statute. A comment in the Columbia Law Review praised the governments for selecting a strong test case and successfully narrowing uh, the constitutional issue on which the government's argument was the strongest. Later commentators rightly echoed this appraisal, yet the near unanimity of the electric bond and share decision, the one uh, that the uh, commission won, coupled with the commission's virtually unblemished record of success before lower court uh, judges of both political parties, 
even before 1937, provides powerful evidence that there was adequate constitutional foundation for national regulation of securities markets long before the New Deal constitutional revolution. All that was needed to capitalize on that potential was the political will to enact such measures and the masterful statutory draftsmanship of lawyers such as Cohen, Corcoran, and Landis. Thank you. Thank you, uh, and thank you, I'm making sure I get the time to start since we knew 15 minutes, strictly enforced. Um, thank you, thank you, Chuck. You saw value in tax and the historical development of tax, and, uh, and it ne you never even made me feel strange for thinking it was worthy of research. And I'm not the only one who benefited from the encyclopedic knowledge that even extended into tax area history. You've helped many of us, and so now that there's a little cohort of tax historians, we are deeply indebted to you. Thank you. Um, one of the things that, that drew me to tax and why I will always um, know that Chuck guided me very early on is I started off being very interested in tax avoidance, people trying to minimize their taxes, and instantly he showed me that that really is all about federalism. And in fact, if you can make people cheating their taxes all about um, federal state relations, knows that that is a broad topic that touches into everything. In tax, issues of federalism often arise when taxpayers attempt to reduce their federal taxes and states prove willing to change their local state law in order to help their residents have a smaller federal tax bill. This play between the states and the federal government began with the taxes enactment. So despite the fact that the federal income tax enacted in 1913 at the height of the progressive era and lauded by some as a national standard and the way to fund the national government into the new century, the tax was actually very dependent upon the states. The states were often able to control the amount of revenue that the federal government was able to raise. The problem was that in 1913 when the income tax was enacted is that most people did not even think about issues of federalism when it came to taxes. So the way that the federal system would influence the development of the income tax was very incrementally developed in fits and starts as we see in much of the area of law. So in 1913 when we get the income tax initially enacted, it had been largely conceived by economists, people who tended to think less about legal theory and legal philosophy. When the tax was, implement, was enforced upon people and taxpayers, most of the taxpayers and even the federal government in response believed or accepted that state law determinations of ownership, who income actually belonged to, would be determined by the states. So at least from the executive branch, there was an acceptance that federalism would continue to play a part. And then it gets to the Supreme Court. And Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes sought a national interpretation of the tax that would not allow the use of state law-defined property interests, which varied from state to state, as a means to avoid the new revenue measure. This was particularly evident in cases involving the family, because families proved quite adept as the first form of the tax shelter at fracturing ownership interests under state law in order to minimize their federal taxes. So Justice Holmes was slowly developing a federal common law of ownership for tax purposes different than other purposes, and he led the Supreme Court to read into the federal income tax of potentially very broad national power to apply the law uniformly across the nation and avoid looking at the underlying state property interests. That changed by 1930. In 1930, Justice Owen Roberts' first opinion for the court was a tax case, and tax jurisprudence from thereafter never went back to the Holmesian uh, view. The court instead moved to greater deference to state law and, and an explicit importation of federalism 
and federally defined property interests into the tax arena. These forces of federalism in the Roberts and post-Roberts um, jurisprudence has constrained the national tax and necessitated other congressional fixes to the tax system. So anytime you complain about the Internal Revenue Code, you're really complaining about Roberts because otherwise we could have had a much more simple common law result. So although this, this early income tax actually was a very small income tax, it, it only required 2.5 million taxable returns in 1929, the tax by that point already raised over a billion dollars in revenue. And because you had such a large amount of government revenue coming from a relatively small group of people, litigation naturally resulted and controversies over whether their income, in fact, should be taxed. The Treasury Department, seeing itself as the protector of the federal fisc, jealously guarded and protected that source of revenue, whereas the small group that had to pay taxpayers left very interesting and sometimes amusing um, letters about how they were persecuted and being dispossessed. Much of the controversies over the income tax were aggravated by the fact that this tax was relatively new. Much of the, even though the United States had had previous versions of the income tax, there had been very little discussions of the mechanics, how operationally the statute should work. Much more of the debate was over the philosophy of whether it was appropriate to have income redistribution in the United States, whether class issues were appropriate through taxation. There was very, um, at least compared to modern days, there was less refined drafting of tax statutes at the time that left many questions of scope and the application of the federal income tax unanswered. So even the most fundamental concept of federal taxation, the seemingly obvious notion that people are supposed to be taxed on their income, developed into a hotly contested issue. So every statute from the from the tax's inception, tax the net income of an individual. What the of meant was open to debate. It could have been interpreted in many ways. You could interpret the of, the income of the person, based on legal title to income. It could be benefit from the income. It could be control over the income. And each different definition would there would determine who would be taxed, how much income could be taxed either to the income earner or to the beneficiaries, and would necessitate more or less deference to state law property interests. And each of these tests you could also interpret, again, based on a national standard, or it could be requiring reference to state law. Families were very eager to use the differences between the standards of title benefit and control to reduce their collective tax taxes. At this point, most families had a single breadwinner. And if that single breadwinner could successfully transfer the tax obligation for part of their income to lower taxed members of the family, the family as a whole would owe less income tax. So cases involving this income shifting among family members percolated throughout the tax system and these cases are still taught today in all of in, in federal income tax courses as the potential common law alternative to the statute, uh, the, stat the latent statute that we have today. So Lucas v. Earls prohibits the contractual shifting of uh, wages for tax purposes. Corliss v. Bowers prohibits trust from shifting earners. And all of these cases came before the court and came before Justice Holmes leading the charge. Now, some people have argued that, they, that Justice Holmes uh, led the charge because he could write such short opinions and that's all they wanted to read about tax. <laughs> I like to think that his pithy responses were just what we needed as a country. <laughs> so his exe the executive position and the taxpayer position in all of these cases tried to determine what the state law property interests were. They assumed that you had to look at the state law to determine who owned what, and so the issue to be debated was, um, was in fact, the state law. With little legislative guidance, the Supreme Court referee between taxpayers and the Bureau of Internal Revenue, which is now the IRS, and in doing so, the Supreme Court had to decide whether to constrain Congress by state law, as everyone assumed should happen, 
or should they develop a federal common law to govern federal income taxations? And these cases were, at least reported by some mean justices, to be an irritant to the court because tax cases by the 1930s had become the largest single item on the tax docket, and yet none of them felt that they had a particular specialty in taxation. In the 1930s, even when they were sometimes divided under, on other New Deal issues, tax cases tended to be unanimous, or at least with potentially one uh, dissent. They were relatively unified. The court often, led by Justice Holm, tried to ensure that the progressive federal income tax would be nationally applied. However, the court then split expressly over the role of federalism in tax matters as it grew increasingly deferential to the states, but it never was willing to go so far as to completely renounce the Holmesian approach. So you ended up with the two different sides of the courts in the tax cases. You have Holmes, the proto-realist, who really was, was advocating for a deferential opinion, uh, deference to the Congress's power. He was often led, uh, in some cases, by the progressives. In many other areas of law, he would face off against the conservatives, but that didn't happen in the tax cases. In the early tax cases, the most important being Lucas v. Earle, um, Corliss v. Bowers, and Robbins. I'm like, Robbins versus somebody. Uh, it turns out that Holmes was, ever, was able to build a unanimous opinion or a unanimous court behind the decision that there should be a nationally applied income tax, that, we should, that Congress had intended, despite a lack of legislative intent, despite a lack of lower court record, despite judges not talking about it, Holmes was able to lead the court and say that Congress clearly intended for the federal income tax to be nationally applied and to be uniform across the country. When Holmes uh, joined the bench, he ultimately replaced, when Roberts joined the bench, he replaced Holmes as the voice of the courts on tax cases, and in the process he changed the future of taxation. When Roberts joined, the court quickly fractured over tax issues as the court felt pressures to refine the legal understanding of property ownership for tax purposes, pressures that drove a wedge uh, between the lib liberal and conservative justices on matters of taxation. So united the conservative block of the court was the conviction that property ought to be protected by and from the government but with the rapid changes in the economy brought about by industrialization, there was slowly, very slowly, evolving a conception of property that can be tied to the idea of the bundle of rights, the notion that more than one person can have ownership over different items. That notion of the bundle of rights was only very belatedly brought into taxation um, and the idea that we need to figure out exactly what is ownership for that purpose. But even though Roberts, when he comes, is, is pretty much foretelling the doom of a common law of taxation, his first opinion in Poe v. Seaborn was unanimous. And even Holmes joined in on, in Roberts' opinion, holding a deference to state law. In the case with respect to uh, Povey Seaborn was the use of state community property law to divide family property between spouses. Although some people have argued that it was just simply that the, the practice of the time to allow a justice's first opinion to be unanimous, you can also think of a more reasoned uh, purpose behind Holmes seemingly switching positions from a nationalist perspective to an increasingly federalist one, and that position being um, the fact that people had frequently raised issues before Congress about the community property difference, the fact that there may be actual differences between the states and what people in fact own, and those differences in what people own should have federal tax consequences. So the fact that there was this dawning recognition on the Holmesian faction that maybe federalism actually must continue on the court, continue in taxation as it does in other areas, was, a, uh, was an awakening in the 1930s. 
After the 1930s, usually the split was more um, along pragmatic lines on whether you favored a large national government or not. So as, as ownership grew more and more finely divided under state property law, once there was the acceptance that we needed to look to, to state law in order to determine ownership for tax purposes, uh, it became more difficult to use what was the state law in order to determine the, the tax consequences. So you end up in the, un, the difficult situation that you needed to look to state law. People were increasingly recognizing that you needed to look to state law, but as they did so, they realized that state law was less and less helpful in their response. And sadly, at least from a tax perspective, the court decided at that point to throw in up its hands and say this has to be a congressional matter. We're going st to stay out of it. And at that point, um, and, and after World War II, the results both for family taxation, most forms of tax avoidance, have been almost singly a congressional sphere. Okay, so uh, I want to talk about the uh, Beverage Child Labor Bill, but before I do, I want to take a moment to uh, do what I've tried to do with most of my career, which is uh, follow Chuck's example. Um, last night, he uh, graciously uh, mentioned that uh, part of what he's been able to accomplish is because of the other people at Virginia he's been with. And I look at this panel, I can't help but take the opportunity to say uh, a couple of things. Um, one is that uh, when I was, uh, uh, Barry came to Virginia right as I was finishing my law school career and was here when I was getting my PhD. And uh, one of the ways I conceptualized what I was doing at the program was I used to tell everyone, I'm on the Barry Cushman plan. Um, and uh, he has always been a, a, a role model and inspiration to me. Um, and uh, this is my first time to be on a panel with him. So uh, I, I've actually been waiting for years to do this, believe it or not. Um, the other thing that I, I rapidly realized is that if your goal as a graduate student is to be like Chuck and be like Barry, that's a little bit like a basketball player wanting to be like Mike. And so there were many times that you kind of get down and you think, I don't know if I can uh, achieve this. And this is when you need friends and people who are a little bit uh, uh, ahead of you in the program. And Stephanie was there along with some other people um, to kind of constantly uh, encourage me and uh, help me. Uh, move forward. And then, you know, since then I've gotten to know Vicki and Sarah, and, and that also makes me think of something about this whole event that I, I, it, it's on my mind a lot. In one way, we are celebrating the end of a career, but uh, in many other ways, what we're doing is we're celebrating uh, a community that has built up around Chuck that's going to move forward, and, and that's something that uh, kind of fills me with uh, joy. So if I can maybe contradict Chuck on one thing. He, he said that it was a, a contingency uh, that got him surrounded by these wonderful people. I don't think it's contingency at all. I think it's structure and the kind of wonderful guy he is who's created this community. So, okay. So now, I had to say that, on to my talk. Um, uh, at the turn of the 20th century, about one child in six uh, was a wage earner. Their continued employment in factory, uh, factories, mines, and mills occurring at a time when there was economic change and change in the understanding of the role that uh, children played in the family created pressure, for, uh, uh, created pressure for government action. It started at the states and moved to the federal government in uh, 1906 with the Beverage Bill, which is where I want to pay attention here. Um, now, the beverage bill has not been a big part of the, or the historiography of the child labor movement because it's seen as a small part of a larger story, uh, which is kind of following, to simplify, uh, progressive uh, uh, interpretations. It's rapacious capitalists and their allies in the Congress and on the court uh, stopping much needed regulation. Um, I'm not convinced that that's a convincing uh, explanation for the beverage bill. Uh, in part because the same Congress that refused to pass the beverage bill, um, you couldn't find a single person who said child labor was a good thing in factories, mines, and mills. They seemed very supportive of it. They were also willing to pass aggressive uh, legislation. That same Congress passed the Pure Food and Drug Act, the Meat Inspection Act, uh, the Federal Employers Liability Act, and the Hepburn Act, all of which used uh, federal power uh, to address the problems of industrialization. So what I think we need is an explanation that uh, will tell us why those passed and child labor didn't, and that's what I want to try to uh, quickly um, communicate here. Um, I think this, uh, if I can, what I hope it shows uh, is that in some, so 
hope I can show that this is kind of a case study in progressive era uh, constitutional politics in which we can see that uh, in some areas constitutional doctrine is malleable and can be used by politicians to advance their interests, but in other ways constitutional doctrine is more brittle and in those cases uh, it can constrain and shape politics in critical ways. That's where I'm going to try to get. Okay, so uh, Alexander Beveridge was a progressive Republican in the TR mold. When uh, 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 Roosevelt won the 1904 uh, election, he wrote Roosevelt, he said, the country went Rooseveltian, not Republican. And what we need to do is rebuild the uh, Republican Party around what he called your great speech uh, at Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, where uh, TR uh, uh, called for uh, the aggressive or more aggressive use of state power to solve the problems of the 20th uh, century. Uh, but Beveridge disagreed on one thing. Where TR had said child labor was a state problem, Beveridge believed uh, the uh, national government should address it. And he believed that for two reasons. The first was politics. Uh, he wrote uh, Teddy Roosevelt, he said, from Maine to Nebraska, people cheered the idea of a federal regulation of child labor more than any other issue. And second of all, he had developed a constitutional argument that proved it was possible, right? Uh, now, Beveridge uh, did uh, uh, believe in dual federalism. This is great. This is to this crowd. I don't have to talk about it. If there's one doctrine this crowd knows about, it's dual federalism. Uh, so, but he did think, he said, look, uh, for the most part, the federal government has no federal police power, but in areas of uh, uh, um, exclusive federal jurisdiction, they do. They have it over the territories, and they also have it over interstate commerce. Right? So we have a federal police power. We can prohibit the interstate shipment of goods produced by factories that employed children using that uh, rationale. Uh, he also said, and the Supreme Court is with me, Look at the lottery case, that's a case that identified this federal uh, police power. Now, what's interesting to me is the way that Republicans responded to these arguments, and what's even more interesting is the way Beveridge, the counter arguments Beveridge put together. And this is another lesson I learned from Chuck. When you see an argument that doesn't make any sense, that is not a moment to just back off and say, well, it must be cover for their interests. Instead, that's an opportunity to see what they understand about the world that you do not. So that's what I'm going to try to uh, say here. Um, the GOP responded, the GOP leadership responded in two ways primarily. First, they said, you've got the law wrong. The lottery case, as Barry explained earlier, just stands for the proposition that the federal police power can be used to prohibit the interstate shipment of harmful goods like uh, impure drugs, but not harmless goods like the product of child labor. But what they primarily did is they bludgeoned uh, Beveridge with this parade of horribles. They said again and again, if you can do this, then you can prohibit all commerce, right? You can prohibit the interstate shipment of goods produced by union labor. It starts getting scary. Uh, by, uh, by, uh, uh, labor, uh, 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 by laborers who uh, worked more than eight hours a day or got paid less money, right? Uh, and Beveridge surprisingly, didn't search for a limiting principle. He didn't search for the limiting principle that many of us probably jumped to our mind immediately, which is freedom of contract, right? This is just a couple of years after Lochner. You'd think a law that prohibited the interstate shipment of goods produced by men who worked less than eight hours a day, who got paid uh, less than a certain amount of money, would violate liberty of contract. But instead, he actually embraced this parade of horribles. My favorite example is someone said, can we prohibit the interstate shipment of cotton? And he says, yes, we can prohibit the interstate shipment of cotton picked by redheaded girls if that's what they want to. Sorry, Stephanie. <laughs> uh, so why did he do that? And here I argue that this is where we run into one of those in, uh, uh, like these brittle areas of law, right? Uh, they couldn't, and this Barry Cushman's work was helpful in helping me see this. I, maybe he'll think I'm taking it too far. But uh, one is that uh, constitutional doctrine at this period had rejected the idea that liberty of contract limited Congress's commerce power. Right? We see this in some antitrust cases like uh, Trans-Missouri Railroad, where railroad made agreements with other railroads to restrict uh, uh, trade. Um, they uh, were accused of violating the Sherman Antitrust Act. It got to the Supreme Court. They said one of the reasons that you can't prosecute us for this is because we have a liberty of contract to make these agreements. And the Supreme Court in Trans-Missouri says, no, you do not. Or rather, that's the wrong question. 
if this is a legitimate regulation of commerce, then it is by definition not a violation of liberty of contract. And in this case, this is a legitimate regulation of liberty of contract, so your freedom of contract claim fails. So my argument is Beveridge had to accept this parade of horribles because he either had to say, that's wrong, in which case people say, you don't understand the law, you've just delegitimated these arguments you're making, or he has to say that the Supreme Court is wrong on these antitrust cases, which undermines antitrust enforcement, and no politician in progressive era America would have been willing to say, I think we've got way too much antitrust uh, uh, prosecution uh, going on, or at least none of uh, Beveridge's response. Right? Um, okay, so I've now lost my place. Okay, yeah, so if that's why Beveridge accepted this, why uh, did the Republican Party rebel? Why did they see this argument and run away from it so quickly? Uh, here, I think what we have to do is understand uh, the way that the Republican Party was thinking about its central coalition. Republican Party in the early 20th century is in large part an alliance of liberty, a, a, a coalition of uh, both uh, laborers and uh, business people in the Northeast tied together in large part by the uh, tariff. Uh, as industrialization proceeds, that coalition is coming under increasing pressure. In 1906, it's under particular pressure, right? Because this is when the AFL has begun its campaign to help its friends and punish its enemies, uh, which was supposed to be nonpartisan, but was really an attempt uh, to uh, was really an attempt uh, to help the Democratic Party build this producers alliance of laborers and farmers. And so, what I think that GOP leadership saw uh, Aldrich and Philander Knox and others was that if we accept, if we vote for Beveridge's bill, we have to vote for his constitutional argument. And if we vote for his constitutional argument, then laborers are going to see that we can in fact constitutionally pass a nationwide law that, uh, uh, that uh, would set maximum hours or minimum wages. And a debate on that issue is going to blow our pardon apart unacceptable for us to have this debate, so we need to kill this beverage bill uh, here. And that's what made it different than the Pure Food and Drug Act uh, and the Meat Inspection Act that could be justified under this narrower theory where you're only prohibiting the interstate shipment of harmful goods. Beveridge was ready to go forward to this because he wants to build a new Republican Party based on these different ideas led by Teddy Roosevelt, Philander Knox, Nelson Aldrich, conservative, more conservative Republicans were not. And so what I hope we can see, or what I see, I um, hope I can convince you of, is that on one hand what we see is politicians looking at malleable areas of the law, like the lottery case, and using those arguments to advance their interests. Of course we do. That's what they do. They're politicians, right? On the other hand, we also see this structure of law transforming this debate over child, over child labor law. From a debate over child labor law, it's not about child labor. It's not about federalism even. Really what that debate was about was about a, the future of the Republican Party, and that uh, debate was transformed because of the structure of the law. So we have both this reciprocal relationship between uh, politics and law, law shapes politics, politics shapes law. It's just intensely interesting and so fun. Uh, and thank you uh, for giving me the chance to share it with you. Okay, let's get set up here. I don't have any maps, sorry. No Indian territories. Whoops, that's it. Um, F5. Is it there? Okay, hot dog. Good afternoon. Um, before I begin, I too have to add a personal note. Uh, just this has been an extraordinary gathering and so g gratifying is it to me to be a part of it. Um, to have all the McCurdy diaspora collected in one place has been wonderful. Um, on Sunday, Saturday morning at the ASLH meeting in DC, a bunch of us got together and um, kind of roasted Chuck kind of a little. Um, had a discussion of his influence on us. And it was really amazing in that session to hear how common certain themes were that emerged. And 
um, today, just sort of in corridor conversations, I, I have to point out there's yet another common theme, and that is we all have the same neurosis. And the neurosis is how in the hell do we measure up to the expectations that we know he set for us? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow uh, Chuck's advice to Sarah, and I'm going to claim it, that is. I'm going to claim the expectations, and then I'm going to lower them for this presentation today. <laughs> because unlike my colleagues here, I am not presenting, you know, fully, fully fleshed out research. I'm actually at the beginning of what I hope will be one of those big, transcendent, synthetic, uh, here's the history of the entire world kind of books, um, which I should finish by the time I'm about 100. So um, I'm, I'm going to talk about the beginning of the project and how it's been shaped already by conversations that I've had with Chuck. Okay, so one thing I learned from being an undergraduate student of Chuck McCurdy is this, do the reading. Always, without fail, on pain of missing out, do the reading. So when I went off to graduate school, I mean, Chuck really said to me, you must go to Berkeley, you must study with Harry Scheiber. So staying at Virginia was really not an option. Um, but in a way, Virginia came with me because Chuck loaded me up with a bibliography that was probably a hundred books and articles. Um, one of them, one of those pieces was um, a book called Sovereignty in an Empty Purse, which I left on the table there, Banks and Politics in the Civil War by some dead white guy named Bray Hammond. Boring. I didn't finish it, Chuck. I never finished it. And what I didn't realize at the time was that, in fact, Chuck was subliminally communicating with me. This was his suggestion for a possible dissertation topic. I was just too obtuse to realize it. He knew that the subject of federal currency regulation was begging for revision. I think, I, from reading fellowship applications, I think you have a very smart PhD who may be finished by now, who actually, nope. <laughs> hi, let's talk, um, <laughs> who has, in fact, taken up that challenge with great and met with great success. So um, having learned my lesson the hard way, a couple years ago after I finished the Ford book, uh, I called Chuck up and said, I need to talk to you about what the hell I'm doing next. Um, and the, I, the big sort of incoherent idea I had was the relationship between capitalism, agriculture, and the state. And of course, he had some reading suggestions. And one of them was A. Whitney Griswold's Farming and Democracy. Actually, that's the book that's on the table. Um, <laughs> um, this time, I read the whole book because I knew that there was another subliminal message embedded in the text. So this paper today, which is completely new, is my attempt for the first time to tease out that message. And as I know Chuck would urge me to do, to put my own spin on it. So, um, but I'm also going to remind you all of something Herbie DeFonso said yesterday, which is history has to move to be history. This is still a snapshot. This is a muggle photograph. Nobody's moving in it. Um, but hopefully I'll, I'll get to the point where everybody is moving in the picture. Okay, let me talk a little bit about A. Whitney Griswold. He was the author of Farming and Democracy, a historian, teacher, and the 16th president of Yale University from 1950 until his untimely and much mourned death at the age of 56 in 1963. Now, Avi Soifer gave me a great anecdote, which I must share with you on pain of taking up time. Um, so uh, the cemetery next to Yale has a sign over it that says, the dead shall rise again, which is you know kind of a universal Christian idea. And uh, uh, Griswold was heard to say, absolutely when Yale needs the land. <laughs> but he has only himself to blame for that because he added 26 buildings to the campus while he was president, tripled the endowment, he was a staunch opponent of McCarthyism and a defender of academic freedom. And like Chuck, he was in fact an academic superstar. He wrote in the fields of foreign policy and education and became a full professor at the age of 41. But farming and democracy doesn't belong to his major fields. It kind of stands apart from the corpus of his work and his other scholarly contributions. Um, but, as is, but as is usually the case with Chuck's bibliographic recommendations, the book is a gem of a starting place for someone like me who's interested in what makes American agriculture economically and politically distinctive. 
Now, Griswold wrote this book in 1948, which is a date that's noteworthy for several reasons. It was three years after the end of World War II, the Chinese Revolution was still one year off, and 1948 was, in fact, the year in which Charles McCurdy was born in Pasadena, California. So that's a nice poetic coincidence, to be sure, but it's also a vivid prompt to us to read the book as Chuck would, on its own terms, in the context of the author's awareness of his world and how it was changing. So now I'd like to have us explore how Griswold's understanding of the conditions of democracy in the immediate post-World War II era shaped his concerns about American farming. Griswold's aim in writing the book, I think, was to argue for the continued relevance of Jeffersonian agrarian ideology, even in a world he acknowledged had been transformed by industrialization, war, and the corporate concentration of wealth. But Griswold was no idealist, no romantic pining for a simple Jeffersonian patchwork of 40-acre farms dotting the nation. He was a clear-eyed realist. He understood that American agriculture had become industrialized thoroughly. He recognized that the war had cemented many of those changes permanently into the national economy and, and federal regulatory structure. And he believed that the state, writ large, had an essential role to play in governing the agricultural industrial market. Describing the transformation of the countryside in the 20th century, he remarked, the Industrial Revolution enabled a smaller farm population to produce more and better food for a larger total population, releasing workers from agriculture for a relatively more productive employment in industry. So it was that the rugged individualist of American tradition entered politics and became one of the principal beneficiaries of government support. In six amply documented, efficiently composed chapters, Griswold analyzes Jefferson's thought on the relationship of agriculture to democratic politics, he compares U.S. agrarian history to that of Britain and France, and he assesses the changes in American agricultural regulation after the New Deal and the war. The British and French case studies purport to show the road not taken by the United States. In Britain, industrialization pushed farm population to a bare minimum, and family farms, what few of them existed in Britain, had all but disappeared by the war. But interestingly, British democracy persevered. But in contrast, France's farm population remained robust, robustly high, thanks to a completely different law of inheritance that facilitated equal land distribution among heirs, a strong set of peasant customs that resisted industrialization in some respects, and a stubborn resistance among small-scale producers to achieve economies of scale, even if it would have enabled them to take advantage of mechanization, technology, and other efficiencies. But by maintaining widespread ownership of small-scale farms, France, Griswold argued, retarded its embrace of industrialization, thus stunting its economic growth without improving its democratic politics. Now, Griswold's take on these divergent European experiences is that Great Britain made the better choices. To him, democracy matters, that is, to Griswold, democracy matters more than the absolute fact of individual family farm ownership. Jefferson exalted the family farm as a social and political ideal, not an economic one, but even he eventually recognized that agriculture and commerce could coexist. In, in 1816, he wrote, we must now place the manufacturer by the side of the agriculturalist. Experience has taught me that manufacturers are now as necessary to our independence as to our comfort. Now, if Jefferson could make that concession 30 years after writing notes on the state of Virginia, then Griswold reasoned that he could argue for the economic importance of modern, technologically advanced, economically efficient farms, regardless of their size. And that's convenient for him, because Griswold, as it turns out, was a big fan of American productivity gains and gains in farm size between 1910 and 1945. Changes in farm population, employment, and total number of farms, quote, show at a glance the extent to which the total structure of American democracy had outgrown its agrarian foundations. What a heresy. The book's most important chapter, another thing I learned as an undergrad at UVA, always identify the most important chapter of any book, gives a trenchant review of the relatively swift and mutual embrace between agriculture and the regulatory state during the 20th century. It also decisively serves the purpose of meeting the ideological challenge of the moment, drawing a careful line between appropriate government support for family farmers and clear overreach of public authority into private prerogatives. By the end of the war, Griswold argued, agriculture could no longer be considered the unique abode of democracy. And sheer numbers, he felt, compelled that conclusion. Four-fifths of the nation's population lived somewhere other than on farms. 
But even those who remained occupied as farmers were now entwined with the processing, distribution, marketing, and retailing systems to a degree that threatened their independent identity as producers. Though I stop here to note that this interdependence was not nearly as new a phenomenon as Griswold supposed. Griswold's point is that farmers had become business owners and as such had become adept at securing interventions in the market that served their interests. During the Depression, during the Depression, these interventions included price supports, credit, and other measures to encourage ownership and increase and decrease tenancy rates. It was therefore necessary in Griswold's mind to reestablish a link between the changed profile of American agriculture and Jeffersonian political theory. And he located that link in a number of permanent federal administrative innovations, in particular the government's committed commitments to ensuring price parity and making farm credit widely available. The linkage between family farming and American democracy, Griswold argues, was reinforced by the repeal of yet a third essential plank of New Deal wartime agricultural regulation, and this was the Farm Security Administration. The FSA's mission, as Griswold approvingly notes, was, quote, to revive the Jeffersonian ideal and make the family farm an explicit goal of policy. It had the power to make loans to credit-strapped farmers, to take marginal land out of production, and to resettle displaced farm families uh, onto model farm communities. The FSA's emphasis on what Griswold calls social rehabilitation, which he described as a, quote, fundamentally non-economic purpose, unquote, set it apart from other New Deal agencies. The FSA also offered the prospect, critical to Griswold, that American farmers might avoid the fate of their British counterparts who were literally run off the land by economic and technological trends that the state failed to moderate. But the FSA's sociological work attracted critical congressional scrutiny. The FSA's use of long-term leases for its community farms and cooperative, uh, cooperative organizations for its producers looked suspiciously communistic to post-war politicians. But here, too, Griswold reminds us of the larger historical perspective. Karl Marx himself had dismissed cooperative agriculture as merely an extension of corporate capitalism. And as the world's foremost student of uh, agricultural marketing cooperatives, I have to say I think Marx is right about that. Um, and the Secretary of Agriculture defiantly characterized the lease system and cooperative farms as, quote, one of the most effective methods of rehabilitating and reclaiming the low-income families and an attempt to find a means of enabling the far small farmer to join, okay, uh, with other small farmers and to approach the efficiency of large undertakings so that the advantage of large purchases and large sales and better machinery could be obtained. But this explanation fell on deaf ears. I will skip to the end. Uh, Congress repealed the FSA in August 46 because it just looked uh, too non-democratic and too non-free market. Um, now, Griswold thinks that repeal symbolized government's commitment to the notion that private property, specifically the ownership of family farms, was essential to democratic society. But he expresses reservations that to us should be telling. He, um, if cooperatives and collectivizations are inimical to democracy, but then what is democracy's solution to the pernicious problem of excess production? And it wasn't the case that no one saw the problem at the time. The USDA specifically recognized the, the contradiction between the objectives of economically profitable family farming and keeping the greatest possible number of people in farming. For Griswold, that contradiction was resolved by federal policy's emphasis on prices both as a measure of economic health and as a barometer of freedom. Now, I think Griswold's critique of the FSA uh, embraced the anti-Marxist assumptions of the congressional repealers, but I think it's clear that Griswold reflected prevailing ideological commitments of the time. Uh, and I'm not gonna go into this uh, here, I'm running out of time. My point is, Griswold thought he had tr transcended ideology, but he hadn't. In, uh, I haven't really read enough post-war ne neoliberal economics to say for sure, but I'm going to go out on a limb and suggest that a lot of these intellectuals had encountered a great difficulty in separating ideology from economics. Uh, as, as Griswold himself summarizes, American policy rightly sought the economic efficiency of the British and the individual enterprise of the French. 
But from where I stand today, I'd argue that American agriculture ended up with neither because it was saddled by congressional refusal to deviate from the ideal of farm ownership when the pressing problems of uh, free ridership and collect collectivity uh, competed for um, attention. So um, uh, again, I'm going to try and uh, sum up here. So um, the democratic consensus after the war is that size matters less than farming, farm ownership in fee simple. And Griswold decides that the way out of this conundrum, you know, farmer, uh, the, the chicken and the egg problem of farming and democracy, is to flip the Jeffersonian relationship. So he concedes that family farming may no longer be essential to democracy, but democracy may have something to do with preserving family farms. And that's where he leaves us, with the hope that farm ownership will remain a policy priority. And the other matter of price supports, which is the very crux of capitalist activity, he leaves on the table. Now, this book left me with a laundry list of issues to, to, to analyze and questions to ask. But um, for now, I'm just going to focus on one thing, and that is what's happened to farm ownership in this country since World War II. Now, these slides are the, the clumsiest, crudest snapshots. Uh, average farm size is a really inelegant measure. Average anything is an inelegant measure. And national averages are just obscure, too many relative differences and variations. But I'm going to just run with it because it's what I got. So what we have, um, and I'm just going to describe the findings, the percentage of owners grows substantially over the last 60 years. The average farm size of owned farms, as opposed to rented farms, grows steadily. It doubles over the period. And the percentage of farm tenants, that is tenancy sharecropping, drops precipitously from just under a third of all farmers operating farms, owners and renters, to just over 1 20th. So we have a bump, a, ser a serious bump in ownership. But here's the downside of that. The downside of that is that farm size, on average, goes up. It and uh, the average size of farms operated by tenants more than quadruples. Uh, and, uh, and farm ownership also increases. But all farms just get much, much bigger over time. So um, we have to ask, even on the basis of what little this tells us, how do farmers, family, corporate, and otherwise relate to the modern American state? and um, how have farmers, I mean, I've got a series of questions. I'll just leave you with this one. How have farmers, family farmers, deployed their trump card, their Jeffersonian claim to a unique relationship to American democracy in the age of agribusiness? And that is where this talk ends and where the next book begins. Thank you, Chuck, as always.